0: Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today, I have psychologist Rachel Harris on the show. Rachel is the author of Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. She was in private practice for 35 years, working with people interested in psychospiritual development. During a decade working in research, Rachel received a National Institutes of Health New Investigators Award and published more than 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals. She has also consulted to Fortune 500 companies and the United Nations. In 2005, Rachel traveled to a retreat center in Costa Rica and serendipitously found herself with the opportunity to drink ayahuasca with Ecuadorian shamans. The morning after her first ceremony, Rachel began asking questions about the therapeutic potential of this medicine. She conducted a three-year research project with Lee Gurriel PhD that resulted in a study of ayahuasca use in North America, published in the Journal of Psychoactive Drugs. Today, I welcome Rachel to the show. Welcome. Thank you, Amy. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you, as you know, because we talked a little (laughs) before. Um, But I wanted to start with a part of your book that was so true and really, I think, pertained obviously to your work and also to the work that I... Think of this podcast as. So, I wanted to start there before we kind of jump into everything else. So, the quote from your book is We have a surprising percentage of individuals who experience unusual states of consciousness, often out of the blue, with no context, no preparation, little understanding, and often accompanied by fear of going crazy or being seen as going crazy, because we don't openly acknowledge or value these kinds of spontaneous spiritual experiences outside religious institutions. People don't know how to talk about them. Isolation and silence makes it more difficult to integrate these experiences. The irony is almost half of Americans would totally understand. So I just think that's so powerful and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on kind of that statement in its own right because I know you've really dug into these mystical, spiritual, psycho-spiritual experiences.
1: Well, let me start with the statistics. When I say almost half of Americans have had this kind of experience, I'm really citing the Pew uh, polls and the Gallup poll. Excuse me. And the question they asked was, and and they do a, a, a statistical sampling of the whole population, and they asked something like, have you had a a mystical or religious spiritual experience, something like that, that changed your life. It was some version of that question. And what's fascinating to me is in 1970, maybe 20% of the population said yes. But in the early 2000s, 2003, something like that, it was like 49%. It was almost half the population had some kind of experience that they would call mystical or religious or spiritual that had a major impact in their life, but this this is not what we talk about, and so um, n- nobody's sharing these, so they have not become the norm, and and so by not talking about them, we're not talking about what happens after that experience. Mm-hmm. So how you know, how are you different? What's what, how did you change your life? Did you change your life? What difference did it make in your life? And that's what's really interesting you know, there's um, a a a well-known nonfiction author, Barbara Ehrenwald. I'm sorry, that's my phone that's talking to me. Um,
0: (laughs) You know, spontaneously, I can't get it to shut up. (laughs) Anyway. Maybe that's what we're talking about. Maybe we're having a shared. (laughs) I think
1: this is Siri. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it was Barbara Ehrenwald. She wrote Five and Dimed. I mean, she writes about a lot of interesting nonfiction things Mm -hmm. and she wrote a book finally she's like late 60s early 70s about her mystical experience totally spontaneous and it's extraordinary because she was maybe 17 or 18 and she said she was walking down the street and everything burst into flames now that's a mystical experience Mm -hmm. so what she was seeing was the whole world went up in flames she never told us all. Imagine being seen having this kind of extraordinary experience and no place to talk about it. What does this mean? What happened to me? And this is our culture, basically. So it took her 50 years, a half a century, to write about it and, and sort of you know put it out there into the open. And she was very um, worried about doing so, but she took that giant leap to reveal her own experience. But that's a that's a classical mystical experience. The, the world burst into flames. Often it's a, it's a Catholic one. So mm. I think some of the Catholic saints have had that kind of an experience. Hmm. Well, so, And so then we have psychedelics that open this experience
0: to many people. So let's start sort of with the basics here of because I'm sure many, some of my listeners have never even heard of what, is, what ayahuasca is.
1: Right. Well, ayahuasca is a, a, a medicine that's used in the indigenous villages in the, in the Amazon basin. And it's a, a tea, a, a concoction that's brewed from two plants. Uh, one is the ayahuasca vine and and the other is the chacruna leaves. And chacruna is the bush that's a cousin of the coffee bush. So these are plants that grow spontaneously in the Amazon jungle and when they're mixed together and they're boiled for like 24 hours, so it's, you know, the the vine is hammered and then it's thrown into this big pot and it's boiled for 24 hours. So it's a a, a complicated long procedure. When you mix the two, um, there's a chemical reaction that allows the DMT and the chacruna plant to become accessible in the human body. So that's how the DMT, which is dimethyltryptamine, which is the psychedelic element in, in the tea, that's what um, yields the uh, visionary uh, experiences, the colors and the shapes and, you know, all the fireworks that people see. And so the question is, well, out of all the plants in the Amazon jungle, you can imagine, how did the indigenous people know to combine these two plants? Mm-hmm. So anthropologists and and ethnobotanists have asked that question and the answer they all get from different tribes at different times is the plants told us so you can see we're dealing with a totally different reality totally different culture you know only now are we beginning on the fringes of botany to to talk about communication with plants so um, the plants told us to mix these two Hmm. So that's the answer that they
0: give. And what is the direct translation? What does ayahuasca actually mean?
1: It's it's the vine of the dead. So it refers to um, this mixture. It does open up portals to the other world. So uh, you know, I I as a psychologist, I was very interested in not just what was your experience, but what happened a- after for you. It, what impact did your experience have on your life? And many, many people, I don't have an exact percentage, report a communication with somebody who's been dead for any number of years, not even just recently dead, could be a couple of decades, and the opportunity for that uh, communication to help resolve issues.
0: Well, and one of the things that you say in your book, which I will probably be quoting you on for the rest of my life because I thought it was so profound is that integrating the, the importance of this all is integrating the spiritual insights into behavioral change, that the actual spiritual experience is not necessarily enough, but how you use that spiritual experience to make changes in your life. Is that right? Right. And that's sort of where the therapeutic piece comes in,
1: right? And so, uh, in this, in the ayahuasca communities, people have are talking about the importance of integration, but the way that's initially been translated is that take it easy the next couple of days, maybe go to a yoga class, go for a walk in nature. Um, Meditate. You know, it's been very sort of spa-like instructions. If mm-hmm. you don't mind my saying that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: As a therapist, I think you know there's an opportunity here to do some amazing work because um, things happen during the ceremony that open up, that open up access to information about our families, to old memories, to sometimes trauma. People report reliving trauma. And these are opportunities to work on things that go way beyond getting a nice massage. So, I mean, you know, one example of access to family information was one woman received information in a ceremony that her mother was not her biological mother, but her sister. And this happens in some families. Yeah, absolutely. Where somebody, somebody gets pregnant. And a different person raises the baby. I mean, there, these kinds of stories happen in many different kinds of families. And it changes everything. And then, of course, she asked, well, who was the father? And it's a, it's a family secret. So this, this opened up a lot of conversation, generational, in the family. Mm-hmm. Um, people report seeing traumatic episodes that they had um, never known about or just not thought about. So there's a, a, an incredible therapeutic opportunity here. What, one of the um, first uh, psychiatrists working with LSD way back in the 50s talks about the opportunity after a, a psychedelic experience, after an LSD experience, is the opportunity to restructure the personality. I mean, it really is an incredible therapeutic um, opening that happens and that requires ongoing therapy.
0: Mhm. And and it's been it, the use of these psychedelics, I know, you know, this you're you're part one of a four or five part series on the exploration of psychedelics, but it's really been kind of it went underground for a, a long time. Well, it was illegal. Mhm but now it's it's, in the early seventies. Right. And now now it's what they call
1: a renaissance. Right.
0: A resurgence of, of exploration. So talk to me a little bit about what.
1: Could I speak to to
0: that issue? Absolutely.
1: There is a, there is a renaissance. There's a lot of research going on and what will become, as the data gets approved through the federal drug administration and, and, and different psychedelics therapeutic use of psychedelics becomes an option. It will be controlled by the medical profession, not you, not me, not (laughs) psychologists. It'll be prescription and it will be the protocol that's approved. And the protocol generally consists of maybe three or so preparatory sessions with a therapist, um, One or two experiences with the medicine, whatever it is. Uh, And then a couple of debriefings, three or four therapy appointments afterwards. Now, some of these appointments are 90 minutes. So there's a real, you know, you're not rushed. Mm -hmm. And I know some of the therapists providing um, this care is sometimes people phone a month or two later and they talk. But this is, in general, a very uh, packaged deal. This is the protocol that will be approved for the medical use of the psychedelics. And that's,
0: that's very little therapy. Yes, it is. Right? <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, and- people have heard me. I was in therapy without psychedelics. For 17 years. So, yes. (laughs) And I always say I had a, I had a great childhood and, and amazing parents and still there was that much to work out. So maybe you could, you know, fast forward at eight years with the use of psychedelics, but.
1: Right. right. (laughs) But that's still more than a few sessions before and after. Right. So I, I, and, and the way LSD was used as the first psychedelic, I think, used with therapy in the 50s, um, it was used in an ongoing way. I mean, people were in ongoing therapy, would would use a, have a psychedelic session and continue in therapy, you know, the next day, the next week. It was part of an ongoing process. And that's I really see that as the best therapeutic use of these experiences.
0: Well, and when you... Talk about ayahuasca in your book. You're you're pretty specific about there's there's a ceremony that occurs that is is very purposeful and intentional, and that general for you and for many others. You talk about grandmother ayahuasca. Who is she?
1: Well, that's that's quite a mystery, isn't it? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really outside our Western uh, cultural education. Um, the ceremonies are, are sacred. So they're, uh, they're done in a sacred, intentional manner and with someone who is very well trained. So a number of the Americans, Anglos, who I know, um, have studied for maybe at least six years before they begin leading ceremonies on their own. So this is quite a long time. It's quite a a philosophical, I mean, these people have committed their lives. They've really switched uh, cultures in a way. And uh, so it's not, you know, I I ran into someone in, in New York. I was giving a talk and she came up to me and she said, well, I've had a few ayahuasca experiences and grandmother ayahuasca, the spirit of the plant, told me that I should be leading ceremonies. And it's like, after a few sessions, well, you know, I've had a brain for a number of decades. Maybe I could do some brain surgery. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, it really is an ongoing process. And I've been interviewing a number of women who have been trained to work with these medicines. And the one thing many of them say is at some point after years of studying with someone that their mentor would say to them, well, I think you're ready to sing in a ceremony or you're ready to lead a ceremony. And the women, it's very interesting. They have all said, No, I'm not ready yet. I need another year or so. And then after a year or so they would they would then begin. And they would generally lead a ceremony with somebody else, with the experienced shaman. So there was sort of a, a, a an internship, if you will. After this long apprenticeship, then there's an internship. So I think we we in Western culture have to appreciate that there's a long training here that this is not something that you just start doing. So um nor is it really grandmother something
0: Iow- oh sorry, go ahead.
1: Well I was going to try and speak to Grandmother ayahuasca because there's there's that is sort of colloquially what people in the North American ayahuasca community have referred used that term to refer to the spirit of the plant. Um, Jeremy Narby doesn't like that. You know, he wrote um, The Cosmic Serpent. So he says the, the, the spirit of ayahuasca is a snake. So that's a very different cosmological picture. Mm-hmm. But um, certainly in, in Western use, many, most people speak about grandmother ayahuasca. And when I did my study, which was of North Americans, Uh, who had had an experience in North America, Uh, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca? Three-quarters of the people said yes. Now that's quite, I mean, they're not all exactly hearing a voice, but they are in some kind of attunement, communication, ongoing relationship with this plant spirit.
0: Even when they're not under?
1: Ongoing. Ongoing, totally sober. Hmm. They connect with her in dreams, in meditation, in reverie, in you know, in their own way, and uh, and some of them are actually hearing voices, so that
0: are external, mm-hmm. but not, and we, but not we don't really psychotic, have a, a right? Western
1: way of talking about this. Yeah,
0: because we would and say that's psychotic. that's psychotic, right? I mean, the the traditional. Um, Therapeutic. Actually, the distinction
1: is: are the voices driving you crazy? Mm -hmm. That's psychotic Mm -hmm. when they're torturing you. But these voices are actually kind of therapeutic and supportive, and so that's a different category. So even hearing an external voice doesn't qualify for psychosis because usually it's a it's a, a
0: therapeutic voice, and people recognize it as such. Well. We recognize it as such, but I think that there are still a lot of people who think that when they hear things that are outside of themselves, that perhaps they're going crazy. Some people would. there's a, there's
1: enough support in in the in the circles and the community of people who are experienced with ayahuasca that uh, people
0: are not concerned that they're going crazy. They understand it. So what is the mechanism by which it works? Like you, you mentioned DMT. Well, that's
1: the element in, in, in the mixture that's psychedelic. How, you know, this is, the, this is the million dollar question. Uh, this is the key therapeutic question that I don't have an answer for. And it is the question that I keep asking. And there are different theories um, and and the person asking the in-depth question is Robin Carhart-Harris, a British researcher, and uh, he's at um, Imperial College in London. And and of course, you know, all, he's looking at functional MRIs when people are under the influence, not researching ayahuasca, but psilocybin and other psychedelics. But it's the same question. Uh, Because what they do is they um, quiet the default mode network in the brain. That's not an anatomical structure. It's a network that goes throughout the brain that is sort of the mechanics of our everyday mind wandering, is what it's called. Mm -hmm. When we're thinking, mulling over the past um, or thinking about the future, but we're not exactly present and focused. So sometimes when you're driving and you realize, oh, I don't know how I got here, it's, it's that part of your brain that was just floating and kind of just on automatic. Or if you're ruminating, that's the default mode network. If you're going over and over things that upset you mm-hmm. or worrying about the future, any, any time we get into a loop, that's the default mode network. And, and so the psychedelics quiet that network.
0: And, and can you then change that network? I mean, that's the goal, right? This is what we always are trying to do in therapy, right? Is get people out of that default mode, that, that feedback loop that they keep telling themselves, whatever story that they're telling themselves. Exactly. Right. The narrative. How is ayahuasca, or, or I guess you're saying we don't really know how ayahuasca is changing that, but somehow it stops that loop from continuing to fire.
1: It can. So it certainly quiets it and and it's also neurogenic. So other neural pathways are created. So other neurons are are created. I mean we we only knew that neurons could, could um, continue to um, be developed in the brain since the early 1990s. We didn't. We thought we'd just lose brain cells. But no, we keep regenerating. Mm-hmm. But all the psychedelics are, are neurogenic. So new brain cells are coming online, and new patterns, new pathways can be developed and then reinforced. And that's what the process of therapy is about. Um, one of the ways this happens clinically is that not only is the default mode network calmed down, but with, as a result of that calming, which quiets that loop, we're able to have more perspective, a therapeutic distance from the things we say to ourselves, And, and people reported this in, in ways that make sense immediately. And it's uh Something like, I still, I still have trouble with my moods. I still get depressed or anxious, but I don't take it so seriously anymore. So you hear the distance. Mm-hmm. I don't take it so seriously anymore. And um, there are a couple of different psychological terms for this. Um, I mean, certainly becoming more objective. I think disidentification. There are a couple of different terms for this um, cognitive space that we have. So we get a little distance from our standard e- ego
0: function. Right, I was going to say At you become step, like the observing ego is able to take over.
1: Yes, and that opens up more choice, and and questions of discernment. How do I? I get a chance to re to to reset my uh, programming. How do I? How do I want to function mm-hmm. in my life?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there, there really is. Um, what that psychiatrist said from the 1950s with LSD therapy, there really can be a restructuring of the personality. Given the quieting of the default mode network, the distancing and, and the
0: choice that that opens. Wow. Well, I want to, we're going we're gonna to make this into a two-part episode because I still have a lot more questions for you. So we're going to stop for today and then come back next week and and talk about my other questions about all of this. So we'll do that, come back next week and pick up where we left off. Thank you, Amy. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life, death, and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.